Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So on day one, God spoke the universe into existence. Heavens and earth were created. On day four, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars to include the planets of our solar system. Now, God said he put them there for signs and seasons. But throughout human history, it seemed like we had a different purpose for them. They they were kind of like a goal to us. Um, We wanted to get to the moon, right? And finally we got to the moon. And now uh, we want to get to Mars, right? So those are things that are now. There's been over, along with our missions to the moon, there's been over 60 missions sent to Mars. Half of them have failed. This is not an easy thing for us to do. If you think we can just shoot a rocket up and have it happen, then you don't understand mathematics completely or something. But... So half of those missions have failed. Okay, so this is starting back in the 60s. We started sending um, missions to Mars um, and to explore it. And at first they were just satellites to circle the planet to see what we could see. Um, Our secret obsession with this, though, was to try to find um, a sign that life had existed on Mars and somehow then be able to blow a hole into uh, Christianity and, and our existence and the fact that God created the heavens and the earth on day one. So that's kind of what we were look, they were looking for. The thought was that we could maybe dispel, dispel all of this. Um, one of the pictures that came back from Mars was wildly popular for a very long time. This face on Mars. You guys remember this one? Right? That's one of the satellite images that came back, and they said, well, that's proof of it. This looks like something off of Easter Island, right? So um, now there's a thing that our brains work, this phenomenon in our brain called um, facial pareidolia. It means that we see faces in everyday objects. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, take a look at this one with this bathtub. Right? I don't know. That seems a little suspicious. I don't know what he's thinking about here. But, or even in this brick. Look at this brick. Right? See that face looking down there? And this next one, this car looks like something out of Pixar. But this is real life, right? So we see faces in these things. So when we actually landed on the planet Mars, which again was not an easy thing to do, the atmosphere is so thin that it's really difficult to get something to land safely on Mars. But we put a couple rovers out there, and when we went right to that uh, that face, right, that thing that we said, well, this is proof that there was a not only life but a, 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 some kind of um, you know people and intelligent life on there. Uh, this is what we saw on the face of Mars. Yeah, it wasn't quite what we were hoping to find. It wasn't quite what we were looking for. Okay, so now we can look at all that and smile and think about how silly that whole idea is. You can take that one down, Jennifer. But there's something to um, our, almost a need for us to recognize these faces in everyday objects. It's something about our brain that's wired like that. That, Like I said, it's not some kind of phobia or something. It's just a phenomenon that our brains do. They try to make, it tries to make sense out of things. Now, we've studied that closely, and we've also compared it to um, our desire and our wish to, uh, to worship things. Because like I said, now, um, we boil the gospel down to some very simple terms. Um, I'm a very simple person when it comes right down to it. I like to have things, you know, kind of lined up a little bit. So we talk about the gospel. The first part of the gospel is that, and we talked about this last week, first part of the gospel is that God created you to be in a relationship with him. So when we think about that, God, you are built, you are wired, us humans are built and wired to worship. And sometimes we get misguided in that worship. Just like we see faces and things that where faces don't exist, we see things to worship where we shouldn't be worshiping and things that, uh, that ought not to be worshipped. 
So that's where we get the word idol from. And we hear that word idol a lot. And other than American idol, when we think about idol, we might think about other countries. We might think about the idols that they worship, the actual statues and the things that they set up um, to worship. And again, we are created to do that. We are created to worship things. And sometimes it just gets a little sideways. Now, when I was in the Air Force Band, I had the, the privilege of traveling around the world. Uh, we lived in Japan for several years and um, got to see some of this idol worship that I'm talking about. Um, in Japan, there's, um, the major religions are uh, Shintoism and Buddhism. Now, neither one of those have a lot of idols, but they do worship idols. So if you see a Shinto shrine, it looks just like a, a blank, pretty blank building. I mean, Japanese are kind of minimalist to begin with. So there's not a lot of idols there, but there certainly are idols in uh, Shinto shrines and Buddhism, or in Buddha shrines. Now, um, they, there's not idols there, but there are idols in, in India. I got, had the uh, fortune, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to India several times, spend several weeks there, six weeks at a time, a couple of times, and got back there um, frequently. Now, um, the, one of the things that I would do there is, or any country I would go to, is I was a tourist. You know, I would go out and, and explore things and see what I could see. So um, when we first got to India, one of the first days we were there, the first time I was there, we had the whole afternoon off, morning and afternoon. We didn't have to be to the gig till later that night. So I rallied the troops. I said, come on, guys, we're going out, and we're going to see what we can find. And so we went to a couple of places. One of the guys from the consulate came and, and kind of toured us around a little bit. He kind of knew some places. He didn't know a lot about them, but he at least knew where to go. But when we got to these places, there was always this uh, kind of a guide there, an uh, unofficial guide, but that's kind of how it worked. You'd go there, and they would tell you about things. You'd tip them a little bit, and then you'd go to the next place. We saw this one place. It was this ancient ruins of um, kind of this huge sundial. Learned a lot about sundials. Then we went to the market and things like that. And then uh, we said, my friend said, well, what about a temple? Can we go to a temple? And the guy said, yeah, I know a big temple right down the road here. So now the major... Um, um, uh, the major religion in India is, is Hindu. Um, 80%, about 80% of the country is, uh, is Hindu. Now, Hindus do have a lot of idols, and it's pretty crazy when you get there. So we got into this temple, this temple complex. Um, uh, and you understand Hinduism is an incredibly complex religion. In fact, I complimented a couple of them on being able to keep any of it straight because it's crazy. There's like four major um, divisions of Hinduism. You think Christians have a lot that we don't have in common. You know, sometimes you know, our little theological differences make a big deal, but no, Hindus, man, they're completely different, but yet they're still um, able to coexist somehow. So, all right, so now we're at this temple. I'm, I'm blown away by the number of statues that I see here, the number of idols that I see here. So, yeah, you can see this first one. Um, this is, uh, uh, they're all over these rooftops. And each of these statues represents a different idol that they've decided to, to pray to about a certain thing, maybe a certain family, maybe a certain event, but they're, they're all over the place. Now, that's, one, that's a small one. Here's a bigger one here. And, and this is not an anomaly. These are all over the place, right? And there's four sides to this thing, and they keep building the buildings higher so they can get more and more statues on them about, about things to pray about. So now I looked around, and I had a guide at, at one of these temples, and I looked around, and I said, well, how many gods are there? And he said, there's no way to know that. He said, I have no idea, but it's got to be in the millions. And I started looking it up a little bit, and it's more like the 100 millions, like 300 million that we can kind of identify and say, you know, this is, these are ones that are actually in existence. Again, Jennifer, you can take that one down. Now, this is a real-life version 
of what Paul was going through when he was in the city of Athens. Um, and so we talk about him going to Athens, we talk about him going to Mars Hill, right? That's a play on, on those idols on Mars. And um, we read that a few minutes ago. Now, Paul um, is in Athens. He's on his second missionary journey um, going through Athens. Now, he's been in a couple of other places already. Um, there was a big blow-up in Thessalonica. Um, the Jewish people there, he was, he was preaching in the synagogue um, like he normally did, and they just ran him out of town, basically. And they had such a big um, to-do that he couldn't get his message across, and they finally decided to leave, and they went to Barrera. And so, but the Thessalonians found out that they were in Barrera, too, so then they came there, stirred up some more trouble for him, and finally they just brought Paul to Athens and said, all right, just hang out here for a while. Timothy and Silas just said, Hang out here for a while, and we'll figure out the rest and figure out what's going to happen after that. Now, while he was in um, Athens, he did what I would do. He went sightseeing. Look at verse 16. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's, Paul, or that's uh, Timothy and Silas, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit, look at this. Boy, this is just poetry. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. This word provoked is the, is the word of the day. Now, it, it's, uh, it's an old Greek word. Now, Luke, I'm going to mention this a couple more times. Luke is writing the book of Acts. And uh, Luke has a different way of writing. Paul, when he writes some of his letters, sometimes invents a word because he's like, we don't have a word that can really cover what I'm talking about here. So he puts a compound or sometimes a triple compound word together. Luke goes way back and uses an old Greek term that uh, we only see uh, one other time in the Bible and only a couple of times um, in antiquity writing. It means to stimulate. It means to, to irritate, you know, like that pebble-in-your-shoe irritation. But it also means this. It also means to sharpen. So I want you to think about that. His spirit was being sharpened within him. You know, he was kind of being fine-tuned, and the, and the Holy Spirit was working in him. I like this a lot. So the Holy Spirit is uh, moving in him and preparing him to act. And then you see that city full of idols. You know, some of the historians that talk about it, um, one of the historians at the time said that Athens had more images in it than the rest of Greece combined. That's how many, uh, so many idols we've got in here. Um, so you think that those Hindu temples, that's not, an, like I said, not an anomaly. The Hindu temples had their gods kind of congregated in one place. Athens had them all over the place. Athens, they said, um, you can't see a doorway or an archway that doesn't have a, a god standing on top of it, standing guard or protecting or whatever it's doing there. So they're, they're all over the place, right? So um, Pliny the Elder said that um, with Nero in the time of Athens, with Nero, 30,000 public statues. Statues, now, just not little figurines. These are statues like you see in, you know, like... Um, um, well, along in the streets, and I was thinking about that um, that place in South Dakota with all the presidents standing around, right? So, they, where, where is that, Sioux City or something? Anyway, you guys are telling me I can't quite hear you, but... Additionally, anyway, there's countless ones in people's homes. The city is literally full of, of idols. Now, Paul is provoked, right? In this city that's littered with, with idols, provoked. Um, provoked also means exasperated. You know, he's at the end of his wits, he's at his wits' ends. He's, it means to, provoke means to become angry, right? But again, now, uh, he plays it cool, right? Paul plays it cool, um, he, ran, uh, he was ran out of the last couple of towns because um, he stirred up the Jews and was preaching uh, Jesus in their synagogues. But um, Paul's a cool dude, but he's also a slow learner. 
Because what does he do in Athens? He goes, he goes straight back to the, the synagogue, right? He's been run out of these other places. Where did he go to preach in verse 17? Let's change that slide. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, right? He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Now understand, though, that these are not followers of Christ yet. This is still pretty early on in history. This is about 50 A.D., so it's still pretty early on. So there's Jews here. There's God-fearing Greeks, also Jewish people, uh, proselytes, you know, the ones that have been uh, converted from whatever uh, pagan they were worshiping uh, to, to Judaism. So they're, they're not true Jews in the eyes of Jews, but they are to us. I mean, they're practicing, um, practicing Jews at this time. All right, so he's in the synagogue. But he also went to the marketplace as well, day by day. Listen to how this says. Um, with those who happened to be there, right? So he's reasoning in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Well, who happened to be there? Uh, some of those that happened to be there um, were a couple of the groups of philosophers. One were called the Epicureans, and one were called the Stoics. Now, um, when I started putting this message together, I started to compare and contrast the Epicureans with the Stoics because they had different ideas, they had different beliefs. But then I started reading it a little more carefully, and Luke, when he's writing about this, kind of just bunches and groups them together and says, yeah, they were there. So I, I went on from that, went a little bit deeper about that. So, um, like I said, they're, they're kind of the same ones, but these philosophers... Um, invited, and that's what it kind of reads, but we're going to read into that in a second. Um, they invited Paul to go to the Acropagus um, so that they could better understand this, the, what they call this new teaching that he was laying out, this new idea, these new ideas. Um, because say what you will about them, at least they wanted to hear, right? Verse 21 says that they were always ready and willing to hear things and to debate. But, okay, before we get into what Paul said, what the amazing words that Paul used here um, that we, again, need to hear today, that literally beyond the belief, um, I want to set the scene. Um, again, we could talk about the differences between the Epicureans and the Stoics, but um, throw that to the side for one minute. Um, but, again, when we look past this, Think about the spot that Paul is talking on now. Again, they bring him up Mars Hill to the Acropagus to, uh, to talk and to debate, and that's where a lot of history was spoken. A lot of incredible people taught there. I'm going to start with a couple. Um, go historically, chronologically. Um, you've heard of Socrates. Well, Socrates was the, the one that, was, that started this whole thing, this whole movement that was here in Athens. He was the one that said that we need to, uh, he, he taught the phrase, know thyself. Maybe you've heard that. Well, that comes from Socrates. He says we've got to go inner. And uh, so after Socrates is Plato. On this same spot, right? Plato is talking about how to develop your inner self. So it was all about us. And then Socrates, Plato, then Aristotle stood in that same spot. He tried to join physics and metaphysics together, but now we'll just kind of throw that to the side for a second. Now, as hard as it is to believe, these guys overlapped each other. So Socrates was first, and before he died, Plato was taken over, and Plato was, was going on, and then Plato, and then Aristotle was born in his lifetime, and he kind of took things on from there. Um, meanwhile, those um, Epicureans were started by a guy by the name of Zeno, and the Stoics were all there at the same time. Uh, the Stoics and, the Zen, and Zeno were basically teaching um, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Basically, that, that idea. Okay, so now with all that as a backdrop, and that all happened about three to 400 years, depending on which uh, philosopher you want to, want to pinpoint, three to 400 years before Paul is standing here, and he's talking to these people now. Okay, so he, again, we go a little bit deeper into the heart of, of that idol worship. 
And this is where Paul shows how the Holy Spirit was equipping him, how the Holy Spirit was provoking him, how the Holy Spirit was sharpening him. Um, He pointed out to them that this wasn't a new teaching. Um, In fact, um, they had heard it before from one of their own esteemed poets, as he says it, or philosophers. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Let me back up. Okay, so Paul, um, he's in Athens now, remember, because he's got run out of the last two towns. And this is supposed to be a safe haven for him. But he's now um, more on trial here than we think. Because the Epicureans and the Stoics said, well, we want to hear this new teaching. Well, they weren't just curious about it. They were checking to see if Paul was actually legal in his rights and in what he was teaching and what he was talking about. Um, because uh, it's, it's illegal to, to introduce new gods in Rome. I'm going to say that again. It's illegal to introduce new gods in Rome. Now we think, well, there's, there's more gods than we can deal with here, but they've all been sanctioned. And they're not just something that somebody made up and somebody just threw out. No, we have to go through a process to get these gods in place. And, and Paul can't just go along and introduce a new one. Um, you remember the philosophers. Um, do you remember maybe in your history you, you heard about one of the philosophers had to drink hemlock and had, was, was executed by drinking hemlock? Raise your hand. Could you, could you just nod and let me know that you're here on a voluntary basis for a second, right? That was Socrates who had to drink hemlock. And why did Socrates have to drink hemlock? Because he introduced new gods to Rome and was stirring up the people. They took this very seriously. Now Paul is standing here in front of these very people, and they're saying, is this a new god that you're introducing to us, yes or no? Now Paul's on the spot. Paul's not going to back down, we know that. But the Holy Spirit has sharpened his mind. I mean, this is pretty serious business. Um, Like I said earlier, but have no fear because Paul is about to blow their minds. He's about to blow your minds, too. He says in verse 22, I think we have that on the board. Paul stood in the midst of the Agropagus and said, Men of Athens, I I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Like I said, one of the historians said that there's a God in every doorway. Um, So you can't get anywhere without seeing a God in Athens. I see that you are very, um, and we can actually use the word superstitious. There's been a lot of debate over that, about that, where it says, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. We think he's being very uh, respectful when he says that because he could be slapping him down a little bit, but we think he's being rather respectful here in what he's saying, especially the way he's, he, he's not going to lose his audience in the first sentence, right? So he says, all right, so um, verse 23 says, um, I was walking along, right? I was on tour. I was being a tourist for I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with, the, with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Okay, so this unknown God, he says you actually know him because you've already been taught about him by one of your poets, by one of your own, one of your own philosophers. That philosopher was Epidemius. Um, he, was a, he became a prophet, actually, if you want to look at it like that, around 600 B.C. Um, there was some sort of epidemic. We don't know exactly what happened. There was some sort of ap- epidemic, and he basically said, our gods can't handle this. He said, our gods can't handle it. See, he said, um, what we're going to do, he said, is we're going to pray to that unknown God. Now, 600 B.C., that's about the time of Daniel. That's the time of Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of things are going on. And, and the God of Israel has been infiltrating throughout the rest of the world. Well, this guy knows about that. The same way Jonah started talking about it. He said, we're, we're going to worship the living God. We're going to worship, worship the true God. We don't know what to call him, but that's who we're going to worship. And you know what? They, they sacrificed sheep, and they said, you know, this is the God 
that we're going to worship now. And you know what? The epidemic went away. God turned that epidemic away for them because of what they did. Now, they were all saved. It went away. So they built altars to the unknown God. Now, the mistake they made is they didn't take down the other ones, but they made this, this to the unknown God because it's really more of, a, of the unnamed God. We don't know what to call this God, so we're just going to say it like this. We're just going to, we don't want to make a mistake. We don't want to offend him, but, so we're going to say it like this. But it is the one true living God that he's talking about here. Now, Paul says this is the unknown God or the unnamed God. You don't know what to call him. That's the one that I'm talking to you about. I'm not introducing a new God to you. I'm just explaining to you the one that you already know about, the one that your own people have explained to you and brought into your life and have, have, you know, have made a difference in your life. That's the one I'm talking about, the one that can do these things for you. And again, the whole idea might seem kind of foreign to us, right? Because Paul talks about, he actually, he actually quotes um, the, the philosopher and says, you know, this is the God that gives us life, breath, and everything else. This is the God of the universe. This is the creator God for everything else that we think about, everything else that we want to do. So he says we have to stop, you have to stop worrying about these idols and, stop wor- and start worshiping this God. He starts to introduce Christ to it, but he did it a little by little, right? He started to talk about that, and he started to give it to him a little bit, but he said, you know, this, if you guys can understand this part, then the rest of it's going to take care of itself. So that's where he started. That's where he wanted to go. He wanted to plant that seed in Athens to talk about those idols that are in their lives and so prevalent in their lives. Now, bring this back home for a second here, because um, you know our personal items are, are too, our idols. I mean, are too numerous to count. And, and when we hear things like this, um, again, we we kind of separate ourselves from that story. Well, I want us to be in the middle of this story. You know, I want us to be the people that are living in Athens. I want us to be those people that, that are thinking like that and those think, the people that, are, that have been setting up these idols because although we don't have a, a statue sitting on our mantle or sitting on our rooftop or things like that, we've got an awful lot of idols in our lives that, that we look at and we recognize. The same way we see that face on the bathtub faucet, you know, we see these, these idols and we bring them in as something to worship. And, and, you know, maybe it's not an intentional move, but it certainly is a move on our part. We don't intentionally want it to be an idol, but we do intentionally go to that and spend a lot of time there. We spend a lot of money there. We spend a lot of effort there. When God says what you should be doing is spending that time, effort, and money on my relationship with you. So like I said, some of the things that creep into our lives that we don't even think about. We think When we think idol worship, we think over or across the sea. We think different places. We think about that tower maybe now with all the idols on it. We think people um, that, are, that are worshiping other things in different ways. Now, again, as ridiculous as this might sound, it's, it's a real-life thing for us. I've got a quick video here that's going to help um, maybe put some dots together, connect some dots, and I'm going to talk about it on the other side. So let's look at this. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? 
Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. It's not just about golden calves anymore. Our personal items are too numerous to count. But they're all designed to do the same thing, and that's pull us away from God, pull us away from that relationship with God. They come from the enemy because he does not want us to have that relationship with God, that God that gives us life, breath, and everything else. So once again, I want us to think how we're more like those people of Athens who welcome many different kinds of idols willingly into our lives. And that we're a people needing to listen to the words of the gospel message. That's what Paul said. You need to hear the words of the gospel message. And like he told the Athenians, it's not a new message, but it's something we need to hear again fresh. Fresh and new as if for the first time. And in our hearts, look at God in the eye and say words like, Lord, we cast down our idols. To look at him in, in our minds and say, purify our hearts. Give us a desire for you. Help us to focus that desire that you created us with to you. Would you stand with me? Sounded like a prayer. We're going to make it a prayer. Lord God, we ask that from you. That you help purify our hearts. You have built us with a desire to worship you. And sometimes that desire can get misguided. And we can fill it with other things in our lives. And we do that, although it's willingly, we don't always willingly turn from you intentionally. So when those desires, that craving that we talked about last week, that craving comes up in our minds, help us turn to you. Help us to fill that hole in our lives. Help us fill it with you. Help us to strengthen our relationship with who we are because of who you are. We have numerous idols in our lives that we don't even recognize. I ask that you open our eyes to the things that we put in your place. The things that gain attention and, and take attention away from you and our time away from you. There could be a lot of different things in our lives, Lord, and I'm not even going to mention them right now because they're too numerous to mention and they're different for every one of us. I ask that you get in the enemy's way and help us just get rid of those things. Again, like I said earlier, help us focus on you and not the things of this world. Would you please now confess with me what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed?